thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and it's great to have you with me today. We, we just had our Restoring the Vision seminar last weekend, and I could just tell from listening to those in the audience and their reaction to the speakers that there were a lot of, literally, aha moments. And uh, I, I decided, after watching the reaction of those who heard Dr. Grant and Jeff Schaefer and heard me, heard the guttural reactions of, oh, mmm, those kinds of things that, uh, or you can tell new ground is being plowed. I've decided that beginning next week, I'm going to work off that seminar to begin a new series uh, that I think you'll enjoy. So if you missed Restoring the Vision, I hope you'll join me in the podcast that will begin next week and go for an indeterminate period of time as we work through some of the concepts that were shared at that seminar and in particular their relationship to our, our culture. I'll come back to that in just a moment, and uh, but I think you will enjoy it. T- today, though, I-, I wanted to close this short series. This will be the third, uh, I-, I guess you could say, in the little series I began a couple of weeks ago on critical race theory with some thoughts related to something I said in last week's podcast that may have raised a few eyebrows or, or maybe even had some of you wagging your heads. After I, after I said it, I thought, wow, there will be some people go, huh? And after I listened to the podcast, uh, I realized, yeah, that may strike some people as really odd. So it's actually a perfect lead-in to the new series, which I I think I'm going to entitle The Why and How of Christian Political Engagement. And I suspect what we'll cover in that series will challenge you in a number of ways, but also am praying that it will be helpful in your own Christian journey, that you'll have some aha moments even as uh, did those who were there, and and that it will also help you cut through the clutter of the messages you get that call for your attention, saying, this is a crisis, this is the crisis, this is the crisis, no, this is the crisis, so that you can discern those things that are of fundamental, enduring, lasting importance that must be addressed and that are at the root of so many of the other things that clamor for your attention. So now, back to last week and what I said. You mean God wants some people to be in poverty? Yes. As I listened to that clip, I thought it's probably hard for any political liberal perhaps even most Christians, to think that God wants anyone to be poor. I mean, it's certainly contrary to the critical race theory. It's contrary to all the clamoring of Black Lives Matters. It's contrary to the push for democratic socialism in our economy and everywhere else. And it's actually contrary to the gospel that many today preach, if not directly, indirectly. And which I think you'll see by the time we finish today, it is not what Paul called in Romans 1.1, the gospel of God. 
You know, we need to be careful that just because we hear something in a building marked church or with a denominational heading over it that sounds conservative, that it is actually the gospel of God. If you remember, Paul wrote to the Christians in, in Galatians and said, somebody's preaching to you a false gospel. This is not the gospel. So we need to be very discerning. And Jesus prayed for his disciples that they would be sanctified in the truth and that his word is truth. And one of the things that, that I have realized is that in much of my upbringing, much of Scripture was passed over and ignored. I just don't remember it ever being talked about. And so I think the statement that I made is a, is a result of that. I, I want to I share something I, I read Saturday morning before I went to Restoring the Vision from Horatio Boner. Uh, who has written some hymns that you may be familiar with, but a, a great Puritan pastor. This was something that he wrote from his book, Truth and Error, in 1855. And it really relates to what, what I've talked about on the show before, uh, what was talked about at Restoring the Vision, that everything exists for the sake of the glory of God. I've quoted for you from Herman Bavink, how he... He tried to answer the question, okay, if God creates, but why did God create? Did he create for man? No, he created for the glory of God. And so here's what Boner wrote. The truth is, is just this, that God's will is the law of the universe. His glory, the object, and end, both in creation and redemption. One of the great aha moments for people that restoring the vision was they, they realized that they had never thought about the importance of creation, the importance of the fact that the Bible starts with God and then creation, that Paul gives his sustained treatise on grace by beginning with creation in chapter 1. And so Mr. Boner goes on to say, that's God's everlasting purpose, the mighty and all-perfect mold in which all things are cast and from which they take their shape and fashion from first to last. Whenever we lose sight of God's great end in all things, his own glory, we fall into a wrong track. We go wrong in judging of doctrine. And then he goes on and says we go wrong in the bent of our efforts. We miscalculate the relative importance of different truths. And that's what I was saying at the top of the broadcast, that I hope this next series will help you distinguish the importance of various issues and the truths that are involved that you might discern which are the most foundational, most fundamental, the most critical that have to be addressed first. And he says then that if we're not careful, religion becomes an instrument for working out our own views and ends. The most solemn and spiritual things are spoken of with levity and irreverence. I like this. Conversion soon becomes the same as the molding of certain opinions. And, and the mark of an unconverted man is that he rejects these opinions. Being loosened from their anchorage, men drift away without a guide. One doctrine after another is embraced, and change succeeds change as month follows month. To make conversion easy is the great object. Oh, boy, haven't we seen that? Or what we want to know is how many, how many people walk down the aisle how many people got baptized? So that becomes the goal. 
to make conversion easy is the great object to accomplish this particular end now notice this favorite passages are dwelt upon incessantly doctrine after doctrine smoothed over and text after text pared away scripture has been perverted man all but deified and God all but dethroned we have rampant within evangelicalism today subjective religion not objective religion because objective religion focuses on who God is that requires doctrine that requires looking at all of scripture and trying to put it all together and what we're interested in is conversions right as if what we do converts a person not what God does it's subject oriented Christianity not God centered Christianity. That's why I was distinguishing in, in the podcast leading up to Restoring the Vision on the difference between a biblical worldview where I'm focused on morality questions rather than a God-centered worldview. Because, see, you can have all the right moral values, but you have them for subjective or personal reasons because you're a human doing for God looking for praise from God, looking for praise from man, rather than being God-centered in how you use and think of this biblical worldview and its moral values. Now, let, let me go on to this question then about God wants some people to be poor. Because that just strikes us as that can't be right. But there's a fascinating story in uh, John chapter 9. And I'll just read to you from the beginning of it real quickly. As he passed by, referring to Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth. So he was born blind. Just like somebody might be born into poverty. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? See, that's how we often look at things. Political conservatives will look at things like that. Well, if you didn't get your education, or you didn't study hard, or, or whatever it might be, or you're just not hardworking, and, and, and certainly we can contribute to our poverty. But that doesn't explain the person who, as I said, is born into poverty, who has done nothing good or bad, even as, as Paul wrote about Jacob and Esau in the womb before either could have done anything good or bad. God chose Jacob and he hated Esau. Romans chapter 9 doesn't get preached on in very many churches either anymore, does it? And so they've asked this question. Well, they have to assume that, that, that somebody's at fault, that this couldn't be the doing of God. And, and listen to how Jesus answers. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wow. Have you really thought about that? To be honest, I had never really thought about that until a few years ago. You see, God said, this person is born blind for the sake of my glory to demonstrate who I am. And, and, and notice in the rest of the story that there, there were those who, who saw what happened and believed, and the religious leaders saw what happened and would not believe. You see, God is always both working in both camps. He's never working in isolation. His eyes rove to and fro across the earth to test the righteous 
and ultimately to test the wicked as well. And the wicked store up wrath for the day of revelation. That's a, it's also probably an unfamiliar thought, but it's up actually in the scripture as well in Romans. Now, let, let, me, let, me, let me go on with this, and, and let's pursue this a little further about God wanting somebody to be poor. Maybe God wanting somebody to be rich. God maybe wanting somebody to be born blind or deaf or whatever it might be uh, with a brilliant intellect or a lesser intellect or taller or smaller or shorter or athletic or not athletic. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 and then verses 21 through 24. In verse 17 it says, But as God has distributed to each one, now notice who's in charge here. God is, has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And he begins to then talk about, uh, were you married when you became a believer? Were you unmarried when you became a believer? And then he gets to this one. This, this is interesting because it deals again with this concept of what we would consider poverty. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Ooh. Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, notice what he says here. He doesn't say, go try to do it. Go march in the streets. Go burn something down. He says, rather, use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. You see, what happens is we become slaves of men. We, we begin to think that certain things that the world says are important are, are necessarily important to us. And we begin to pursue them rather than the glory of God. Rather than saying, this is what the Lord has distributed to me. How may I use it for his glory? I have to change my circumstances. I have to have these other things. In, in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, notice what he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come, and they are from God. So you see, Paul is saying, we, we don't judge the way the world does. We don't see people within the body of Christ the way others would see them. And that leads me to Philemon. Uh, and in chapter 1, here's the story of Philemon you may be familiar with, but Onesimus a servant of Philemon has run away. Bad thing, right? And, and while he's gone, he runs into Paul and becomes a believer. So Paul writes to Philemon, the, the owner of Onesimus, and says, quote, I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf, Philemon, that he might actually minister to me in my change for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. 
And notice what then Paul says. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose. You see, Paul deeply believes that God is, is behind all things that are taking place. And he's saying, you might look at it as Philemon as he's a runaway slave, but think about the possibility that he was running away in order to run to God. And then Paul continues, in order that you, Philemon, might receive him, Onesimus, forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he's not telling Onesimus, you know, go back and surely, you know, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be freed and it's all going to be okay. You don't know necessarily what Philemon's doing. But he is appealing to Philemon to say, God is the cause behind him coming. Think about that, Philemon. God is the ultimate final cause of all things, as I read from Boner. It's the will of God that is the law of all things. And he says, but that you might have him back. But if he's a slave even, kept in, in that capacity relative to you, he, he is more than that. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 4, 11 through 14. He says, not that I need, I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Wow, there's not much contentment in our world today because they don't know the God of contentment, the God of contentment who knows that all of the divine plans within the counsel of the triune God will last and stand forever and are dependent and contingent on nothing outside of the being of God, the wisdom of God, and the knowledge of God. So he says, so I'm content. I know how to be abased. Ooh, that's a bad thing, isn't it? Not according to Paul. He says, I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Because what he's learned in all of these instances, and you have to think particularly those in which he was abased and hungry and suffering need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But notice what he then says. He doesn't say, so I'm returning everything here so I can keep suffering more, as if somehow that's going to be some badge of credit or merit to him. See, I'm, I'm even returning your gift. God's going to provide for me. He says, but, he says, nevertheless, you've done well that you've shared in my distress. You see, we can be thankful for what we, we don't have, and we can be thankful that God is working toward the good in our lives and in other ways that we may not even realize, and so we can be content. Now, that's really hard, and I confess, I'm not content all the time, but I had a, a friend of mine who is politically and theologically my exact polar opposite who's been tracking what I write and say for many years, say to me about a month ago, you seem to be more at peace with yourself and everything than you were several years ago. And the answer is, yes, I am. Because I've understood now who God is and who I am in relation to him. Now, I want to I close with, with a, a thought here. The reason I believe we get this so messed up the reason that it is hard for us to hear that, that God might want somebody born into poverty and might choose to leave them there 
is because we have to realize that our view of the world cannot start with us and our circumstances. It has to start with God. If you remember the February 19th podcast with Andrew Sandlin, he says, the problem with modern evangelicalism is we start with us and our problems in Genesis 3. And we don't start with, in the beginning, there's God who creates, Genesis 1 and 2. Modern evangelicalism is filled with people who are concerned with themselves more than the glory of God and what will make for their pleasure, their good, their eternal good. Look, we can want heaven for, for reasons that have nothing to do with loving God and desiring to be in the presence of God and see the face of Jesus. I remember I used to go to my grandmother's house and she was a great cook, as I think probably every grandmother is, and she always had some kind of pie or dessert in the kitchen. And I'd come to the front door when I was a little boy, and I'd kiss Grandma and say, I love you, and I'd run to the kitchen to see what was in the cake or the pie plate. And I think that's, that's how so many see Christianity. Oh, we thank you, God, for Jesus, because we're going to get to go to heaven. And it's going to be great. It's just the Christianized version of Islam with the 72 versions. Now, let me quote to you what Kuiper said, and I've mentioned him so many times, and I'll close with these thoughts. But he says that a life and world system has to find its starting point in a special interpretation of our relation to God. We have to deal with the question, why is anything there? Is there a God or is not there a God? And so, therefore, you have to begin everything with that question. And every general development, he says, of of a form of life, whether it's your political life or your family life or your business life or your church life, must find its starting point in a peculiar interpretation of your relation to God. You have to figure out what does politics look like in relation to God? What does law look like in relation to God? Those are some of the things that we covered. What does it mean to be human in relation to God? All those things have to be answered by everybody. And so what Kuiper says is that the, the Protestantism that arose during the Reformation period, he says it does, did, did not deny that religion has its human and subjective side. In other words, he's not saying everything's objective and, and there's nothing to do with, with ourselves. But he says it doesn't dispute the fact he says, that, that religion is promoted, encouraged, and strengthened by our disposition to seek help in time of need and spiritual elevation in the face of sensual passions. See, God allows those things often to be that which drives us subjectively because of those concerns to the objective, the God who is there, as Francis Schaeffer says. So uh, Kuiper concedes that there is a subjective aspect to Christianity. He says, religion as such produces also a blessing for man. And then he says this, but it does not exist for the sake of man. It is not God who exists for the sake of his creation. The creation exists for the sake of God. For as the scripture says, he has created all things for himself. I guess if there's a point to wrap up this section on critical race theory, it is that we need to be mindful 
of the vantage point through which we see all things. And critical race theory puts the vantage point, the perspective, the point by which all things are integrated into the category of race rather than the God who is in the beginning and the will of God for his own glory. Thank you for joining me today and I'll look forward to being with you as we follow up with some of these thoughts in the new series that starts next Friday. Hope to have you join me then. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.